For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, exploring the facts about mental illness and mass shootings. How Tucson photographer Jade Beal is taking on ageism in Wise Bodies, Beautiful Elders. And join some mushroom hunters on a monsoon quest. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. In the aftermath of the deadly shootings in El Paso and Dayton, the perceived connection between mental illness and gun violence is being used to influence public opinion and potential gun legislation. But what are the facts? One year ago, AZPM mental health reporter Gisela Tellis asked Dr. Patricia Harrison Monroe, who is the clinical associate professor and vice chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. She's also the director of the early psychosis intervention program called Epicenter. When tragic incidents of mass violence happen, we often end up having a conversation about our mental health system. What does that conversation get right, and what does it get wrong? Well, what it gets right is that we do need to pay attention to what situations drive people uh, into such a crisis that they engage in mass shootings and mass violence. What it gets wrong is the automatic um, connection that the public and and unfortunately um, many of our politicians make uh, by linking violence to mental illness. Uh, We know that the vast majority of people with mental illness are not, in fact, violent. Uh, And really, the majority of violence that is perpetrated is against individuals with mental illness, with severe mental illness. The overall contribution of people with serious mental illness to violent crimes is only about 3%. So why do you think that myth persists? Well, you know, I think the, the public is misinformed about uh, the connection between mental illness and violence. What they see and hear often links uh, mental illness to a violent act that's uh, sensational, and that really does not reflect the reality. The majority of violent crimes uh, are in fact connected to substance use, uh, primarily alcohol use, um, and have nothing to do with mental illness. However, when sensational crimes do happen, uh, unfortunately, a lot of times I hear reporters question whether or not there is any known history of mental illness for that individual, which automatically links the perception whether or not it's confirmed um, that, in fact, the person must have been mentally ill in order to commit such an atrocity. So I think it's it's important to highlight that, that even when we start asking about that history of mental health treatment, that, that link is being made and that stereotype is being reinforced, and actually nothing in the research supports that. 
Correct. When it comes to gun violence and mental illness, there is one link that is supported by the science, and that is when it comes to suicide. So what do we need to know about suicide as a public health problem? Suicide doesn't get talked about very much. And I would say that many of your listeners probably don't know that uh, it is the second leading cause of death for individuals from 10 to 35 years old. Um, That is significant. And in fact, um, there were more than twice as many suicides in the United States in 2016 than there were homicides. Again, I think it's really important to recognize that suicide uh, and death by suicide is a a significant public health problem. Uh, 90% of all completed suicides are carried out by someone with a diagnosable mental illness. So it really is important to provide treatment availability to provide early intervention to individuals that are in crisis because, in fact, um, so many more lives are lost uh, to suicide than to homicide each year. As rare as they may be, there are incidents of mass violence where mental illness does play a role, as we saw here in Tucson in the January 8, 2011 shooting. Is there something we've learned from those incidents that has changed our mental health system for the better or improved our understanding of how to respond to these events and the people who perpetrate them? I think one of the things that we've done and and that the community is doing is really um, encouraging um, early identification of issues and um, particularly having um, both community colleges and at the university um, having programs that provide early intervention and a means by which students or faculty can express concern about uh, maybe an individual who they feel may pose a threat. However, again, we need to be really careful not to become reporters of potential threats um, based on our own preconceptions about what um, a violent individual might look like. So good education, uh, clear facts, um, better access to resources, um, those are some of the things that I think will um, make a difference. Gisela Tellis spoke with Dr. Patricia Harrison-Monroe. She directs Epicenter, a community mental health program that offers specialized treatment for people early in the course of a psychotic illness. On Monday of this week, State House Speaker Rusty Bowers mistakenly said that Arizona was, quote, fortunate in not having experienced a major mass shooting. Some media users were quick to remind Bowers of January 8, 2011, when six people were killed and more than a dozen were injured. Like Tucson, El Paso and Dayton have now joined the long list that also includes Parkland, Columbine, and Sandy Hook, places that have experienced this particular form of mass violence. But what did the Tucson community learn from the tragedy? To discuss that, I'm joined now by Christine Wells, the acting director of NAMI Southern Arizona, a branch of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. What was your reaction to President Trump's statements earlier this week that were heavily linking mental illness to gun violence? While I appreciate the heightened interest and conversations about the role of mental health in our society, we really need to make sure that we're not painting all people with mental illness as violent. The truth is that most violence is perpetuated by people who do not suffer from mental illness. And these statements, to the contrary, only perpetuate the stigma 
and distract from the real issues. The prevalence of mental illness among perpetrators of mass violence is the same frequency as in the general population. I think people find it difficult to understand why mass violence occurs and so may assume that the perpetrator must be mentally ill. And this is really based on misconceptions that people with mental illness are a danger to others. The perpetrators really are often individuals who are angry, resentful, and hopeless. That is not mental illness. Mental illness really cannot be used as a tool to distract from criminal behavior. There was a quote from the president's statement that really stood out to me. I have it written down here. It was, we must reform mental health laws to better identify mentally disturbed individuals and make sure those people not only get treatment, but when necessary, involuntary confinement. I found those words unusual to hear coming from a public official, and I wonder what that language might say to you, Christine. I think it's concerning. We really need to be very careful that our response to these tragedies doesn't discourage people with mental illness from seeking help. And comments like that can be stigmatizing and incite fear, and that keeps people from seeking help. Institutionalizing people with a serious mental illness, whether in psychiatric hospitals or jail or prison, is really the wrong approach. We did institutionalization many years ago, and we moved away from it over 50 years ago. People were institutionalized for long periods of time, sometimes for life, and without legal rights and often subject to horrific conditions. And we have laws already that address the issue of when somebody's at risk of harming themselves or someone else, and when a hospitalization is required on an involuntary basis. We do need more acute care and crisis stabilization services. That these options are too often not available when people need them has contributed to problems like criminalization of mental illness. Hospitalization should be short-term. They should be a part of a community-based continuum of care. We also need to focus on improving the quality of care to ensure people are really getting what they need and can access what they need. To do this, we should ensure a well-funded and strong mental health system through fully funding Medicaid programs and requiring private health insurance companies to provide adequate coverage for mental health and substance abuse treatment. Christine, can you share with our listeners something about a policy or a law that NAMI is endorsing, something that people in your community think could make a positive change? Um, Certainly the extreme risk protection orders or red flag laws that are being discussed on the national level might be helpful. What's important about them is they're not focused on mental illness, but rather the assessment of potentially dangerous behavior. In Arizona, the NAMI community has been focused on working with the legislature around putting money back into housing for people with serious mental illness without many requirements so that we can use the housing first model where we help people have stable housing with the idea that once you have stable housing, you can be employed, you can develop your life, um, your health is better. And so we want that to, to move forward if at all possible. Because sometimes in those situations, social services can end up seeming almost like the world's most difficult neighborhood association, where they put a lot of requirements on the tenants, maybe take drug testing that people have to go through to keep that housing. So you're suggesting that this model is a little different? Yes. For example, some folks with serious mental illness 
do have problems with addiction. And if they're required to show that they're sober all the time, that may not occur and they may lose their housing. So having some flexibility on that and really focusing on helping people manage in the housing makes a big difference. And now we're at a point where uh, more American cities are facing the kind of tragedy that Tucson experienced in 2011. From your perspective, do you think that this community learned anything? Has there been a change that could prevent future shootings or address mental health needs in a better way? Yes, I think Tucson is very special in that the community tends to come together around these things, and the focus on civil discourse was really important. Um, in addition, we have a stronger crisis response system that really brings together all aspects of the community to support people in crisis. I also think there's a greater awareness and more emphasis on education and support around mental illness and early intervention. Um, some examples are that NAMI, for example, provides education and support to middle school and high school kids, trying to help them understand the signs and symptoms of mental illness and what to do when they experience it or see it in a friend so that early help is possible. In addition, a number of community organizations have come together to form the Help and Hope for Youth Alliance that specifically is targeting stigma reduction and um, promotion of early intervention and education for youth. Um, and finally, a number of schools and mental health agencies are working together so that there is more access to mental health services in the schools to try again to intervene early and make sure people get the help they need. Christine Wells will be the acting director of NAMI Southern Arizona until November. They provide help and understanding to anyone coping with mental illness. They can be reached online at namisa.org. Tucson-based photographer Jade Beal describes herself as a troublemaker because she believes passionately that everyone has the right to feel beautiful. Using her camera, Beal finds the beauty in her subjects and then shares it with the world. She's currently creating a book of mostly nude photographs of senior citizens to be called Wise Bodies, Beautiful Elders. She intends for it to include people from all over the world, but she started here in Tucson by asking couple Jerry and Darwin Hall to bear their bodies and their love. So which of you would like to tell me how you met? We met at church. And that was that? <laughs> well, there's a lot of story behind that, but that was in 1994, and it's now, what is it, 2019? Mm -hmm. That was a lot of years ago. Yeah, right. Uh, Darwin, what do you remember about meeting Jerry? She was a great speaker and very personable. I really liked her. But at the time, I was married, and I had my two-year-old son with me, and so, hi, how are you? Okay. <laughs> but later, you had a different situation, and an opportunity for romance bloomed? Absolutely. And it's been blooming ever since. <laughs> so how did news of Jade Beale's project come to you, and what kind of a discussion did you have when you were making the decision to take part? She texted us. I think that's what happened. You'd done a... Um, photo shoot with Jay before that. The I first one I didn't take off all my clothes. <laughs> <laughs> you had to work because up I to that? Because I was shy. I had to work yeah. up to that. 
But the idea was to work on body image and body positive image because I'd had images about my body my whole life. I was always a little on the chunky side, and my mother was always on my case to lose weight, I'll never find a man, and all that stuff. She was so bad that when my sister was coming up behind me, she's seven years younger, my mother wouldn't let her in a family picture because she was overweight. So if I have problems with my body image, that's where it comes from. And I always thought I was ugly. And I wasn't ugly. As I look back at the pictures, I wasn't ugly. So working on that issue when we first went to uh, get our pictures taken, and then the second time I came back, I think I was a little better about it. <laughs> and then after she called us or texted us or invited us to model for her for a photo shoot that was about elder bodies, I said yes. Well, I said, okay. <laughs> now, I too have body images. You know, I always, as a kid growing up, I always thought I was really, really overweight. I've got boobs, you know, and that's that something that most men don't have. And so I've always been self-conscious about that. And you're a very tall gentleman. I'm very tall, yeah. Yeah. So um, doing this with Jade, I've known Jade since she was very young, actually, and then was reacquainted with her with this project. Now, I thought this was a local project. <laughs> and we'll, we'll talk to Jade about that, but it seems like she's got a more global focus for this. It, it has mushroomed. That picture, that one picture of us that went viral, there were like millions and millions of people around the world who saw that picture, and I'm like, Ugh. and at first that was very scary, but then I started reading the comments that people made about about the picture, and they made me cry because people were like so blown away. They they cried because because we'd had the courage, and they cried because obviously we were in love. And we were in our 70s, and they saw possibilities for themselves that they had given up on. Jade Beale, as the photographer behind this, uh, explain to us why you wanted to work in this space. Why was this narrative appealing to you? I started photographing the way I do because too many of us have lived most of our lives hating our bodies, and it's a waste of time. Bodies are sacred. Like, we came from nothing and here are these gorgeous bodies and then we're trained to believe that they're somehow shameful and gross and should be hidden. So when I did my first project with mothers, I was a new mother myself. I dealt with eating disorders my whole life since I was 10 years old and I was done. I was done hating myself. So I took these photos of the fattest I'd ever been and I put them on Facebook and I called them beautiful and they broke the internet. It was seven years ago. And it grows. Body positivity has grown so much. It's it, At first, it was very exclusive. And then everyone's like, hey, I want my voice. I want, I want to be heard. I want to be seen. And after I published my book, self-published, I asked people on the Kickstarter, what, what else should I turn my attention to? What do you want to see? And the vast majority said, I want to see elders. I want to know what it's like to grow old, free from shame. The 191.7 billion dollar anti-aging beauty industry attacks us every day telling us we're not enough. You have experience shooting nudes, so what is important to you as a photographer to put your subjects at ease, to allow them to relax in that environment because 
you know, we're talking about body image and, 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 and how we feel about ourselves. And then we're talking about the intense scrutiny of the camera. Most of my clients arrived to my studio um, trembling. Just a, a couple of weeks ago, a woman was at the front of my door in my studio, and I opened the door, and she was in tears, and it was a Sunday. And she said, I've been crying since Friday. I'm so scared to do this. And I was like, but you're here. That is so awesome. Let's do this. <laughs> she left elated, smiling. To be seen fully without hiding anything is... It seems so like, oh, yeah, whatever, but it's not. Then I get to witness this miracle that came to be. And then the years that has shaped it, all the pain and all the beauty that has created wrinkles and different things that happen in our bodies. And it's, it's no one is the same. So every time I get a brand new masterpiece to photograph, and that is so delicious to me. So only one out of my elders project, the only one woman has arrived, Carmeline. She's in her late 70s, and I never met her before. She knocks on my door, I open, and she's just smiling. She's like, wait until you see this body. <laughs> and she was wearing a moo-moo, and she walked in, closed my door, and stripped off that moo And she's like, look at this. <laughs> and I was like, yes. We must reclaim the lost tradition of honoring and revering our elders. It's a privilege denied to many. And so I hope to photograph over a hundred people and I'm gonna print this gorgeous book with beautiful pages and everyone that owns this book is basically a rad human. <laughs> so there's no fear, Jerry. They are gonna look at this with tears in their eyes and hopes in their hearts that actually, I wish, I hope, I pray that I get to live as long as the two of you in love. Well, I hope you do, too. Yes. My guests were photographer Jade Beal and her models, Jerry and Darwin Hall. You can see a preview of Wise Bodies, Beautiful Elders at jadebeal.com. This time of year is special for many reasons. The monsoon not only brings change to the desert, it brings a secret aspect of Mount Lemmon to life. But you have to know where to look. Here we are on the top of Mount Lemmon, and any day that, even if you, we weren't to find one single mushroom, any time you've spent a day in the woods, you've already won. My name is Julia Bishop Beauty, and I was a reporter for 25 years at the border. And now my major passion is mushrooming. I've joined a group and we hold mushroom growing classes and we have mushroom hunts. We look for mushroom treasure. Right, which is what we're doing here so, today. But what if I open it? It's still brown all the way through. Exactly, it's just incredible. You're out here in the forest and you're suddenly seeing bright oranges, bright reds, blues, whites, purples, any color, bright yellow. Um, so it's, it's something really amazing. And the fact that it only pops up at a short time of the year and uh, disappears again, it's just a really magical thing to be the person that captured it in that small time that it was there. My name is Niles Bauer, and I run the Mushroom Club here in Tucson. We are in Mount Lemmon in Tucson, Arizona, because this is probably the densest mushroom population after the monsoons of any place in the world, or of any known place in the world. Because we have the monsoons, and because the monsoons are finite and, and fairly short, the mushrooms have to emerge during the monsoon or soon afterwards. Hey, my name is Denver and I'm a mushroom hunter. 
I just really have a hobby and enjoyment to come out here into the mountains during the rainy season and find all the delicious medicinal edible mushrooms that I can. I would say solidly I've been doing it for about four to five years and it started as chance as I got a book for Christmas that was a mushroom ID guide. Um, so it kind of started there but it really the passion was ignited when I came up here to Mount Lemon and found Ganoderma conchs, big beautiful red mushrooms growing on the trees and that just really started a passion for me to come up here and see what else I could find year after year. Anytime you say the word mushroom, all you hear people talk, oh, trippy mushrooms, this and that, but it's really a, a sad state of affairs because uh, most Americans, most Westerners don't have a relationship with mushrooms. And whereas most other countries do, uh, most any other countries, you know, they really love mushroom hunting, they love gourmet mushrooms. And in America, unfortunately, we only know of two or three varieties really when there's thousands and thousands of varieties that could be being enjoyed. You just gotta get out there and find them, start cultivating them. So over here, you see some uh, nice polypores. Not positive on the idea of them. Probably not hard to figure out what they are. But uh, these are very common up here on Mount Lemon. You'll find them all over the place from probably 6,500 feet on up. This is the shaggy mane mushroom. It's a choice edible mushroom. And one of the nice things about it is it doesn't have a lot of lookalikes. So when you're going along, you can find it, you can identify it, and you know you found mushroom treasure because it's delicious. Your day has just paid off. I actually don't like eating mushrooms, <laughs> but I'm just fascinated by the legitimate science behind them. My background is in engineering, but I've never pursued that. I always went for my passion, I guess. Mushrooms are essential to a forest. They're essential to any ecosystem itself. And if you look over there, you can see mushrooms going on the side of this dead log. What they're doing is recycling the nutrients from the tree itself back into the system so you can get uptake into living organisms. Plants, animals, fungi itself gets, gets reused and recycled by fungi. Without that, this whole system would just break down. Everything would just fall apart. I don't think we choose who we fall in love with, right? And I didn't really choose to fall in love with mushrooms. You know, they, they appeared, it happened, I fell in love. And then after that, I can identify logical reasons, what like, such as, you know, they have incredibly huge medicinal properties, or they have chemical warfare between each other and make little chemicals, or they support all life on the planet, right? So I can use all these logical reasons, but basically I just fell in love. I could study them for the rest of my life and not learn everything there is to know about mushrooms. They continually surprise and delight me. You can see the video version of that story on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. It was produced for Arizona Illustrated by Tony Paniagua with the radio adaptation by Maya Hoffman-Long. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.